Please take your Bible and put your finger in 1 John chapter 2 and then turn back with me to James chapter 4. 1 John chapter 2, a few verses we'll read in that, but we'll begin in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll read the first seven verses and then turn over to 1 John 2. James 4, let's hear God's word, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Turn, please, now to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, just three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. God will add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you please bow your head with me for a moment? Let's ask the Lord, to draw near to us all tonight. Let's all pray. Blessed Father in heaven, we turn once again to the scriptures of truth. Thy son prayed to thee one day long, long ago that thou wouldst sanctify thy disciples through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We have been given the privilege of handling the precious word of God. Grant grace to handle it in a way that is honoring to thee, that is beneficial to all the hearers this evening. We need thy Holy Spirit to that end. We have no might in ourselves. Thou hast made it so clear in thy word that we are simply clay vessels, And who is sufficient for these things? We rejoice to know that our sufficiency is of God. Whether it be in the preaching or in the hearing. We do pray that there will be a sense of thy presence, thy nearness for us all tonight. What a difference it makes, O God, when thou dost draw near to thy people. When thou dost get our attention, our heart's attention, as only thou canst. Thou, Lord, art the only one, really, who can get the the heart's attention. So we pray, Spirit of God, quicken us this evening. Endue with power. And we pray that thou wilt open the eyes and open the ears. Enlighten the understanding that we might indeed 
through thy truth know more of what it is to be like Christ. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen and amen. Any serious study of the pursuit of Christian holiness must take into consideration the great antagonist to this pursuit, namely the devil. Satan is the ever-present enemy that is trying to hinder us from walking down that path of holiness that we began to consider this morning. He will strive. We are to strive for holiness. And he will strive to keep us away from Christ. He knows what happens when Christ's people draw near to him. The promise he knows right well in Scripture. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to thee. That's a promise you can count on. He sees the transformation that takes place every time a child of God gets in earnest about getting near the Lord. Getting near him in his daily walk. Getting near him in his word. Getting near him in the place of prayer. Getting near him in the house of God. It's all about getting nearer, still nearer to the Lord. And he knows what happens. He knows the changes that take place. So he is the enemy of all enemies that will strive to keep you from walking down the path of holiness. And it doesn't matter what he has to use to keep you as far from Christ as he can. In the context of dealing with various sins that were plaguing the churches to whom James was addressing his epistle, he makes a very simple yet very bold statement in that verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In my mind, that is one of the most astounding statements in Scripture. The word flee has the idea of fleeing away in fear. Imagine that. By resisting the devil, he will flee in fear away from God's people. Integral to the efforts of the Lord's people to to be holy, because the Lord their God is holy, is resisting Satan. It's vital for every child of God to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, to stand against his efforts to lead you down a path of unholiness, down a path of sin and separation from the only one who can work that holiness in your life. We must be able to recognize the wiles, the tricks, the snares of the devil, not be ignorant of them. We need to know who we're dealing with and how he wars against our souls and how he wars against everything in our lives, everything in our homes, everything in our church that is godly. It's his special goal to destroy as much as he possibly can what our chief end in life is all about. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He knows that's why Satan, he knows that's why God made us. So Satan fights against that as much as he can. His ultimate target, of course, is God, whom he hates with a hatred that we can't begin to comprehend. There's war going on between heaven and hell. And we are in the midst of it. 
His tactics to achieve that end are clearly set down in the word of God. For example, since the word of God is, as our catechism teaches us, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him, the only rule, then the devil makes that word of God his specific object of attack. He seeks to create darkness over what God has said in his word by trying to corrupt it. He wants you to be in the dark about what the scriptures really teach. He wants you to know as little about your Bibles as he can manage to work in your life. He wants you to keep it closed in your home, closed in your family, closed in your private life. That's why you will find in apostate churches that have left God long ago, the Bible is a closed book. He's done his job, and he's done it well. He seeks to create that darkness, at least one of the ways about what God has said in his word by trying to to corrupt it. He's not afraid to use scripture. He knows the Bible quite well. He's had thousands of years to study it. So he's not uh, delinquent to take up this word and to use it to actually lead the people of God into sin. Did he not do that with Jesus Christ in the wilderness? Did he not use the scriptures to try to lead Christ to sin against his father in heaven? He doesn't hesitate a moment to attack the souls of men as long as he can pervert it through false doctrine or adding to the word of God or taking away from the word of God or putting a spin on it that ends up actually saying quite the opposite of what the word of God clearly teaches. He's good at it. And the less we know about the Lord's word, the more able he is to put a spin on it that we accept. And that keeps us from living that life of purity because we're in darkness about what do the scriptures really teach? What is God's will for my life? What should I be doing and what should I not be doing? What is acceptable to God and what isn't? What pleases him and what displeases him? Satan works at that continually. I was sitting in 1983, probably around April, in Newtown Square, Free Presbyterian Church. The minister, the Reverend John Greer, had only been installed for a month there, and I was hearing this message. You know, I'm not hearing a message. I was actually seeing them, you know, their behavior on Sundays was different than mine. I wouldn't have any problem of stopping by McDonald's on the way home from church. Or running down to the local shop, you call it, on a Sunday afternoon, because we stayed over often, uh, long distance between where we lived and the church, and go and get us some ham and cheese and make a sandwich. No problem. Until I heard him preach one Sabbath morning on keeping the Sabbath day. Never heard it in my life. I'm 27 years old. I've never heard one sermon in any church I had ever been in that you keep the Sabbath day holy. But that's all it took for me. Show me from God's word. It's done. That's his will. Why had that happened? Why had that happened? Somewhere along the line. Somewhere along the line. The devil pulled the wool over people's eyes. And said that's an Old Testament command. Doesn't apply to the church today. When actually keeping the Sabbath day is such an essential part of living a holy life? Isn't that amazing? He also attempts to instill doubts about what the Word of God says. Doubts. He especially does this by playing the role of an accuser. Satan attempts to create doubts about the the truthfulness, the veracity, and and, and the dependability of God's word by bringing accusations about God 
That's what he did with Eve. Hath God said Eve? Did God really say that? That you couldn't touch the fruit? Eat the fruit? Question mark. Did he really say that? Is that what that really means? And by bringing accusations to us, about us. It's all in order to destroy our knowledge and our understanding of who of who God is and what God has done through Christ in his people. You do that, and you have weakened their ability to honor and enjoy the Lord. You've affected their walk. But there's another way that the devil comes at Christians that must be resisted. As the corrupter, he promotes darkness over the word of God. As the accuser, he promotes doubts about the word of God. Tonight, I want us to see as the tempter, he promotes disobedience to the word of God. Not going down the path that God wants. Satan as the tempter of God's people wants to Keep us every moment of the day, every corner, every turn, every week, every month. Keep us off this path to thwart us. Matthew said of Jesus Christ in the wilderness, Matthew Henry, or Matthew said, the tempter came to him. The tempter came to him. Note what he said. Not a tempter, but the tempter. That little article in front of the word tempter shows us some important truths about our enemy that we must realize as we seek to resist him, that we might walk down this path of holiness that we are to strive for. First, and I've not gotten to the message yet, if you're taking notes, this is all introductory. I've just got to do this. This this message tonight... If you happen to doze and then wake up, you'd probably be lost. I don't mean spiritually. I mean, you've just got to follow the, the tight argument that we're going to go through tonight. Uh, someone suggested uh, after the week of Balamina was over, struggling saints was the theme, that you ought to preach a sermon on struggling to stay awake in church, and that would be a good message to preach. But uh, I, I just want you to... Please try to follow with me in what I'm dealing with. This is all just introductory to get what I really want to get to, at least begin to get to that. There is a great difference between the devil's temptations and God's temptations. God is never called, never in the word, the tempter. Matter of fact, man is never called the tempter in the word of God. But, but, but we do read in the Old Testament that God tempted men. For example, in Genesis 22, that God did tempt Abraham. And we do read that man tempted God. In Numbers 14, that tragic scene where Israel is turned back from entering the land of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea. God says to Israel that you have tempted me these ten times. But never in the Old Testament is the word translated tempt, describe a solicitation to do evil or to sin. James earlier states back in chapter 1 verse 13 of his epistle, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And when man is said to tempt God, it means that he's testing God's patience, he's testing his justice, He's sort of saying, well, I'm challenging you as to whether or not you're going to be true to your word. But when the Holy Spirit says that the devil, the tempter, he is underscoring the truth, as John Calvin put it, quote, that temptations which solicit us to what is evil come from him Alone. Temptations that solicit us to evil come from Him 
the tempter alone. The tempter he is. Notice then, therefore, it means that when men would solicit us to do evil, it is the tempter that's behind it. Now, what he's doing is to seek to induce us to do anything but what is holy, anything but what God wants, anything what pleases God, do the opposite. You all know what that's like. You did it today, didn't you? Didn't you? Don't our substanders teach that we sin every day in word and thought and deed? Yes. It's how, how does the devil go about using the strategy of temptation to get us to disobey God's word and thus we dishonor the Lord and when that happens, we don't enjoy him and we're not going to be happy. How does he do that? How does it work? This is warfare, folks. This is warfare. It would be a very pitiful army that went against their enemy without having some kind of plan and not knowing the tactics of the enemy and just think everything's going to be all right, not to worry. We need to know how he works. John says, and that's why I had you read 1 John chapter 2 of that epistle, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, it is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God, there you are, there's holiness. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So there are three basic statements being made by the Holy Spirit. Number one, all that is in the world is of the world. It's not of the Father, but it is of the world. It comes from the world. Number two, if anyone loves the world or the things in the world, then he is not in possession of the Father's love. Number three, All the things in the world, all these things can be summed up under three things, three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And all three of those things are summed up in verse 17 as the lust of the world. That's the summary. Now I want you to see how John describes the man who stands in stark contrast to anyone who loves the world. In the last half of verse 17, he doeth the will of God. That's the contrast. Here's the man who loves the things of the world, his lust and desires for, his passion is for the things of the world. Here's the man who loves God. He doeth the will of God. That's the language being used. The desire... For all that is in the world leads quite naturally to not doing the will of God. It's a hatred for holiness, a rejection of obedience. If you love the world, James says, you're not a friend of God, but you're a friend of the enemy. Satan is called the prince of this world three times in John's gospel. The prince of this world. What do you think he has found to be his most effective tactic into leading you and me away from the path of holiness into the path of disobedience? Most effective tactic? The lust of the world. 
the lust of the world. Now all this begs the question, and it's a big question. What is the meaning of the term world? What is it? We'll not understand what its lusts are, not really get them, grasp them, and so that's going to affect our our walk in the world. If we don't grasp what the word world means, as John is using it in this passage. And we certainly won't understand what the terms worldly or worldliness actually are in real time if we don't get what John means when he speaks of the world. As crucial as it is to understand these terms and any desire to follow, to pursue after, to strive for holiness being like God, I'm afraid there is a lot of confusion about these terms, the world and worldly and worldliness. I see them bandied about so incorrectly, so loosely, in places where they don't even fit, they don't apply, because there's a failure to understand in Scripture what it's the world is talking about. You see, the devil does not want the Lord's people to really have a clear understanding of this term, the world, or what it means to love the world, or to be worldly, or what worldliness actually looks like amongst the saints. He doesn't want, he wants to keep that in the dark, under wraps. He is the one who always wants and seeks to define the terms. He knows he who defines the terms wins. And if he can get us to believe his definition of the terms of Scripture, he's got his way. His definition will always involve a little bit of truth, but a whole lot of error. And that's his tactic. I mean, John's statement is very simple, folks. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. Doesn't get much plainer than that, does it? But for all its simplicity, it's certainly one of the most misunderstood verses in God's word. The end result is that you have Christians labeling things as worldly when they are not worldly in the slightest. They've got a wrong starting point because they don't understand what is meant by the world in Scripture. And you can understand why that's going to affect your walk with the Lord. If that's off, it's got to. On the flip side, you have Christians who refuse to recognize almost anything as worldly. When, when you come to the scriptures of truth, you find this is definitely worldly. And this is worldliness. And I must stay clear of it. I must strive against it in my life. There's confusion. So now you have Christians, at least professing Christians, asking questions like, are certain styles of music worldly? Is music really amoral? I've heard Christian musicians say this. Music is amoral. And so the questions get raised. Is music, that music, really worldly? Is it being worldly if I download the latest Christian rap music on my mobile? After all, the lyrics are so biblical. It's sound theology. It's reformed. It's Calvinistic. 
Is it really worldly? Is it okay to listen to the country music and the honky-tonk? How much violence or foul language in a movie is too much? Is it five words? Is it five times God's name is taken in vain? Is that too much? And then I have to turn it off. Is it okay to watch an R-rated movie as long as I fast forward past the bad scenes? Is it worldly to go to a movie theater? Is it being worldly for a Christian to make a lot of money and drive a luxury car and live in a mansion? Am I being worldly? Not I. You'll understand why I say not I. But is, is, a, is a woman being worldly if she wears trousers? Or makeup? Or if she paints her fingernails and her toenails? If she pierces her ears? What about her nose? Is it worldly to play the lottery? Is it worldly to have a beer? A glass of wine? You know what I know right now? In your mind, you're asking the question, what does he think about these things? Right? And so we could spend all night putting down a list of things. The list of what is and what isn't worldly. And I can assure you, I can assure you, as sure as I'm standing here, that our lists are not going to agree. It's not going to happen. I'm going to put things on the worldly side that you'll put on the unworldly side. Or it's it's not worldly. And, And vice versa. You see, some people want a hard and fast list of do's and don'ts. And they come to a church looking for that. You just tell me what I'm supposed to believe. You just tell me what's right and wrong. Tell me what I can do and can't do, and that's fine. I don't have to think through these things. Don't don't make me sit down with the Word of God and at the throne of grace and work through these various things that everyone is saying it's worldly or it's not worldly. That's the easy path. Others don't want the questions asked at all. I imagine there would be churches where they wouldn't even want the preacher to bring up this subject. It might cause a little trouble in the congregation. I don't think that's going to happen here. I hope it sparks some good discussions in your homes and with your minister. Because we need to know how to approach the devil's tactics because he's going to use the world to lead us away as far as he can from Christ. That we might not glorify the Lord and that we might not enjoy him and be happy. Whenever you have these two approaches to defining the word world or whatever, It's missing the point of the text. And whenever that happens, you discover that the church loses her distinctiveness from the world. Remember, the devil is about the cloud of confusion and the darkness and the doubts. When that happens, when there's this talking about the to-do list, inevitably it results in the church losing her distinctiveness 
from the world. Why? Because the devil has done such a masterful job at lies and deception. And we've lost our, our sensitivity to understand what the real danger is. And presence of worldliness in the church. And if it's not recognized, it's not going to be dealt with. It's not going to be addressed. And you don't deal with the very things that are leading the people of God away from nearness to Christ. You know what's going to happen. You know how it plays out. It's not persecution that's devastating the church. It's the tempter has made great inroads in seducing the church by the world. James Hunter, an American author, he wrote a book in 1987. Keep that date in mind. 1987. It's called Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation. He was writing about what was... This is now. We're here. He, he describes... So we're, talking, we're going back 35 years when he wrote about then the loss of this clear distinction between the church and the world. Here's what he said. Evangelicals still adhere to prohibitions against premarital, extramarital, and homosexual relations. But even here, the attitude toward those prohibitions has noticeably softened. Many of the distinctions separating Christian conduct from worldly conduct have been challenged, if not altogether undermined. Even the words worldly and worldliness have, within a generation, lost most of their traditional meaning. That was 35 years ago. I don't know what he would say about 2022. The distinction has been lost. The clear-cut difference between what the people of God look like and act like, what they're pursuing, and the world. One preacher describes the church as letting down her guard on this matter against worldliness, had this to say. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. That was well put. You know who said it? C.H. Spurgeon in the mid-1800s. In another message in 1867, he declared, Put your finger on any prosperous age in the church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Unquote. Never were there good times where the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts, And in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ. And the more potent is her witness against sin. D.L. Moody, you all know the name well, put it succinctly when he said, A line should be drawn between the church and the world, and every Christian should get both feet out of the world. So the problem we're facing today as we think about this lack of distinctiveness when it's becoming more and more difficult to discern Christians from worldlings. The problem we're facing is defining the world and worldliness. So before 
we can begin to look at how the devil, as the tempter, attacks Christians with the lusts of the world, the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life, we need to find out what the Holy Spirit means by the word world. So, first point, finally got there, and it's the only point I'm going to deal with. Defining our terms. Defining our terms. We must, we must begin with this premise. Whatever the Spirit of God meant by using this word world, its meaning is constant in any age. Whatever he meant by using the word world, its meaning must be constant in any age. If it's not, it's wide open to interpretation. I should be able to sit down with the Apostle John and have a discussion about this world, this word world, and we would be on the same page as to the meaning of the word. There may well be and will be different applications that we will work out depending on what was going on in our day, but still the basic idea of what the word world means we would be in complete agreement on. First, what these terms, world, worldliness, worldly, what they're not about, what they are not about. John is not advocating that the way that we are going to resist the devil so that he will flee from us, so that we can walk more freely down this path, the holiness of life, is to go and live in a monastery or a nunnery somewhere. That kind of separation from the world is not biblical. There's no way under God's heaven that you and I can fulfill the command of Christ to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth if we separate ourselves entirely from the world. That can't happen. We are to be lights. We are to live in this world. We are to be salt, to hold back corruption, and we therefore cannot get in our little cubbyhole, stay in our home safe and sound, and don't venture out. That, that can't happen. That's not what he means by not being worldly. John is using this term world to refer to the organized system of fallen humanity the organized system of fallen humanity that is ruled by Satan, the prince of this world. The organized system of fallen humanity ruled, governed by Satan. Christ said in Luke 11, If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? The world is his kingdom. The people in it are his subjects. Just as we are in Christ's kingdom and we are his subjects. He's our ruler. He's our master. We do the things that he says. And so therefore the devil is not our master. He's not our prince. We have another one. So the world is anything. Mark this. It is anything and everything that is opposed to Christ and to Christ's people and to living a holy life. Anything. We would say in America, period. You would say full stop. Anything. Is anything going through your mind right now? But you would say in my life, it is an opposition to Christ. It is an opposition to his rule in my heart or in my home, how I live. Is there anything? So what do you have to call it if that's the truth? What do you have to call it? That's worldly. Make sense?
John 15, verse 19, Christ said to his disciples, If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. They're polar opposites. Here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he writes, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. A more literal rendering of that text would be, The whole world lieth under the control of the wicked one. That's his domain. The whole world, this organized system of fallen humanity, lies under the control of the wicked one his kingdom. And so the world is that which is positively hostile. Hostile to God, hostile to Christ, hostile to his kingdom. It's at enmity with God. There's a warfare that's going on. It hates God and his ways and his people and his laws and it hates holiness. It fights against it. That is why we are forbidden by the Holy Ghost and the word of God to love the world And the things in the world were forbidden. Love not. If we try to conform to the world, in ever so seemingly an insignificant way, if we try to conform to it, it will contaminate us. Conformity always brings about contamination. And let me please say a word to young people for a moment. I know I look old. Some brother of the day thought I was his age and he was 20 years older than I was and my ego took a dive when he told me that. But I've been around the block a few times and I remember my teen years quite well. I did the drugs, I did the alcohol, I did the nightclubs. I know all about it. This, this business of being cool, or whatever modern term is used now, but you know what I mean. You want to be accepted by your peers. All it's about is conforming you to the world. I wanted to be liked in high school. I wanted the guys to think I was cool. I'd go drink with them and I'd curse like them. Conforming to the world, it contaminates you. You young folk remember that. You stay a million miles away from anyone that would want you to conform to the world. You say you're a Christian, then you've got to prove it. I am not of the world. I am not of the world, and I don't want to be like the world. I want to be so different, and it's good. Brothers and sisters, you, you just listen It is good when the world thinks that Christians are odd because we are odd. We are different. That's a good thing. It's a bad thing when there's such a resemblance between us and the world. It's a bad thing. We're living in a day, of course, like as far as my life is concerned... Never before, where the world is in our face. It's up close. Through the electronic media, it can come into our homes, our workplace, our car, everywhere. Its corrupt value system bombards the church continually through television movies, the internet, music, magazines, newspapers, our cell phones, they're always there. It's never but a heartbeat away. Well, some of those things, some of them are not evil in and of themselves, yet they act as means. Let me tell you folks, Satan knows what he's doing. 
And I think he's got many, many a child of God absolutely hoodwinked. And there has been a justification of that which draws the people of God away from Christ, away from the nearness to him. And what's going to happen? The distinction, because holy living distinguishes us. Walking in the light of God's word distinguishes us from the world. What difference are they going to see? What impact are we going to have? How strong will our testimony be if we act like them and do the same things they do and go to the same places they go? What's the difference? Ah, but we don't want to be thought of being odd, strange. There's still that desire for acceptance. What does that tell you? The devil is having a heyday. And please do not allow indifference. Please do not allow personal pride to convince you otherwise. Please don't get your back up at what I'm saying. I have been here and I've done this. I know the damage it does. I know how it affects the walk. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord is coming alongside you right now. And I haven't said one word about something that you know is drawing you away, away from the word, away from the house of God, away from the place of prayer. You have all the time in the world for everything else but the Lord. And you wonder why you're not happy. Really? Has it gotten that bad that you're not able to see? Surely this is why I've lost my joy. Surely this is why I'm not more useful than I would like to be. The world has come in. And I've let it come in. There's not a day that goes by where Satan's world doesn't come to tempt us to make choices. Look at it like this. To make choices between love for the world and the enemy or love for Christ. Two voices. Which one do I listen to? Now, what worldliness is all about? That's what it's not. What is it all about? You might be surprised, but it's all about this word, love. Love not the world. Love not the things in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not... You see how that word just comes to the surface? Love is about the word love. Worldliness is about loving the things of this fallen world. Desiring the things that are contrary to Christ, that are contrary to holiness, that are contrary to living in his kingdom. We're living in his kingdom. This is about life in the kingdom. And how is life in the kingdom... It's loving the things of the kingdom and hating the things of Satan's world. Worldliness, worldliness is putting our opinions above God's word. It comes down to it every time. Well, I think this is okay. But you know what? So often is the case, you haven't really sat down with the word of God to find out if it is okay. And if the preacher comes along and says, that's worldly. No, that's his opinion. And I've got my opinion. And I'm going to go with my opinion. But what is it? Let me ask the question. What is it that characterizes your life the most? What dominates your thinking and excites you the most? Those are searching questions. 
Is it the pleasures of the world which are nothing more and nothing less than the things that please Satan? Or is it the things that please Christ? What excites you? What, what, what really exercises your soul? Do you find yourself thinking more about growing prosperous in the world than you do about growing prosperous in your spiritual life? Again, please be honest. I can't read your hearts, but God knows exactly where you are. What is it that consumes your thoughts and your desires and your time, your efforts, your energy? Answers to these questions say a lot about who we are and where we are along this path to holiness. I am well aware that just mentioning the term worldliness to Christians, you'll find you've got a fight on your hands. A fight on your hands. Some Christians think of it only in terms of externals, having a set of standards. As long as I keep those standards, I'm okay. And if you don't meet up to those standards, you're worldly. Someone else did that a long, long time ago. They were called Pharisees. They had standards. This is holiness. And if you don't do that, then that's unholiness. That's not pleasing to God. And they had it all worked out. A finely tuned system of standards that they would preach and teach. You want to be like us, the Pharisees and righteous, then you do these things. Don't do them. You're an old sinner. There are Christians like that. It's... I've got to choose my words carefully now. It's so off the mark. Some of the standards that are raised, because if you do this, it's okay. You know, as long as you have a hat on in church, it's fine. But you can wear a plunging neckline, and that's nothing said about that. That's twisted. That is twisted. It's a wrong standard. Well, you know, if she's got two earrings in each ear, worldly, but nothing is said about the short skirt. It's all about externals. Other Christians who have no patience at all for such the, the, the pharisaical legalistic mentality, they believe you shouldn't even try to define worldliness. As if there aren't really any hard and fast standards. Both views are wrong. To focus on the externals, on a list that has been drawn up, by men according to their own preconceived notions, not based upon the word of God. But this is how it's always been. This is tradition. This is how we've always done it. And if you don't go with tradition, you're now actually sitting against God. It's to miss the whole point of what John's driving at. You see, this is about loving the world. That means it's about something very internal. It's about the heart. That's what it's about. Worldliness is about the heart. Holiness is about the heart. It's not about the standards that we think we, this makes us holy. This makes us acceptable. You can be ever so careful that your dress is not worldly. And there is worldly dress. And it doesn't have to be a short skirt. There is worldly dress. There is worldly language. There is worldly media. It's Satan's kingdom. It's his trash. It's a cesspool. It's worldly. But you can avoid all of that 
and yet still be very worldly. Because it's a hard issue. The essence of worldliness is not our outward behavior, though it is true what's on the inside is going to manifest itself on the external. John is talking about, here's the key word, he's talking about the lusts of the world and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. He's dealing with something very internal. In this matter of worldliness, therefore, it would appear to me that the Holy Ghost is directing our attention to what a man craves, to what he really wants, what he longs for. And what Satan does is to come to us, knowing right well, knowing right well that the principle of sin is still within us, he comes to us and sets before our eyes sets before our ears, sets before our flesh, something that it naturally craves, but that which God forbids. He comes and tempts us to put, to sin by putting something before our eyes that stirs up wrong desires and passions for all kinds of wrong things. It's not wrong to be wealthy. What is wrong, according to God's word, is to labor to be rich. That's what is forbidden. Labor not to be rich. Love not the world. He comes and suggests to us that we have reason to be proud. We have reason to, to criticize others because we have it together. We cross the T's and dot the I's. We're the best of the best. Everyone else we look down at, they're inferior. That's the pride of life. It's the world. It's the world. Has many different faces. That's worldliness. And it's just how Satan uses those things that we want to consider tomorrow evening. So will you come back? Part three. We need to hear it. If we want to strive for holiness, to deal with this one whom we must resist, so that he will flee from us. Again, anyone here tonight that doesn't know Christ, you've never been saved. You've never for one moment in your life had a desire to resist the devil. You've never hated the world. You can't really say, I hate the world. I hate my sin. I hate it. No, the fact is you love it. And you do love the world. You let loose the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And what John says, if that's the case, if that's how you live your life, then the love of the Father is not in you. You are at war with God, your maker. And your sins are the weapons that you're taking up. And you're fighting against God with your sins. Christ is still the open-armed Savior and will receive you with all of your sins and all of your fighting. And for the first time in your life, if you will but call upon him and him alone to save you, you will find for the first time ever hatred for the world and for the devil arising in your heart and a love for holiness. If that's your concern, stay behind. Why would you go out another day fighting in the devil's trenches for him and against Christ? Stay behind. The minister would be happy to sit down with you. Why would you die in your sin? Why would you do that? 
It's insanity. It's insanity to war against God. It's insanity to follow the course of this world. You follow it, and one day you will perish with it. But it does not have to be that way. Come to Christ tonight. God read his word on our hearts for his sake. Let's bow our heads in the closing word of prayer. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, again we thank thee for the sense that thou hast drawn near, for searching our hearts. We wouldn't want, Lord, to be in any meeting in the house of God where thou hast not dealt with us, made us to think, given us things to pray over, to talk out, that we might follow the path of holiness. Give us help, we pray, as we leave tonight. Tarry with us, our God, not just tonight, but into tomorrow morning, when we know we must get alone with thee and seek thy face to walk the path that resists the devil. Bless the food and fellowship afterwards. Use it to nourish these bodies. And use the fellowship to strengthen the soul. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. And amen.